Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, where one crisis is never enough. I'm Dorian Linsky, and joining me in a very specific and limited way are two of our <laughs> regulars. Roz Taylor is editor at the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Roz, hello. Hello. COVID-19 cases have been rising uh, by 3,000 a day this week. Now the government has outlawed social gatherings of more than six people. Uh, so you can hang out with six office colleagues uh, or eat in prep, presumably, alongside six people, but not six friends. Is this message too uh, mixed to get the public on side at this stage? Yeah, it's going to mean a, a completely new redefinition of a work-related meeting, isn't it? Um, it's going to, to get very creative there. Um, this, this surprised me a little bit because what, what uh, surprised me most was that there was no distinction between indoors and outdoors. And we know that COVID-19 spreads much, much more readily indoors. And yet the guidance is the same. It's a maximum of six people, whether you're in someone's garden, in someone's house, in a park. So that has the virtue of simplicity. But what's clear here is that the government is prioritising the economy, desperately doesn't want to close down things like pubs and restaurants and, of course, schools. So that seems it, they seem to have gone for simplicity, but it will make some people understandably very unhappy because we'll see if you've got three kids, for example, you legally won't be able to meet up with grandparents any longer again. So that will be unpopular. Anna, are you with Lindsay Hoyle on the uh, on the wisdom of announcing major new legal changes uh, on Twitter rather than uh, to the House of Commons? It's weird that there's often a major new announcement, just as the government seems to have embarrassed itself in some way. I, I don't know. Could this possibly be a distraction policy? I <laughs> well, I, the thing is with that theory is I always think I think the government is kind of a twenty four seven rolling embarrassment. So I'm always wondering what exactly is meant to be distracted from and for how long. I don't know if there's a distraction big enough. News comes at you fast. Alex Andreo is an actor, writer, singer, fresh from the presenter's chair following his debut as host last week. Hello, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Um, so Extinction Rebellion caused a stir over the weekend when they blockaded printing presses, stopping papers like The Mail, The Sun, Telegraph and the FT uh, from being delivered. Uh what do you make of that as a, as a form of protest? Um, well, the answer is your favourite. It's complicated. I mean, it's a, if a protest movement seeks to affect change on any issue, the first prerequisite is that the issue is on the agenda. And because of coronavirus and everything else, the issue had dropped largely off the agenda. So I guess the proof of the pudding is in the eating. If the latest series of actions manages to push the subject of the climate emergency back up the agenda, it will have been successful. Whether it has rubbed some people up the wrong way or not, if it doesn't, then they will have annoyed people for nothing. But is that is that enough? Because I do notice that with criticism of this or criticism of anything that XR does, uh, the instant response is, ah, well, you're tweeting about it. Ah, well, you're talking about it. So does, I mean, by that logic, presumably there is no such thing as a bad protest as long as it gets people's attention yeah i mean i think organizations like extinction rebellion act as a wedge to move the the overton window so that it includes the issue and then sort of slightly less alienating advocates take over that i and i i have the feeling that's what it's there largely to do and do you think the targeting the media is uh is a sort of wise move no, I mean, I, I don't think it was particularly smart. 
but then again, I didn't think it was particularly smart to glue yourself onto a commuter train. Um, what do you like, Alex? Well, look, <laughs> the, but, but the, the fact of the matter is that through a combination of these direct actions, the, the uh, climate issue has been pushed up the agenda. So, you know, yes, I don't like this individual action and that individual action, but as a whole, you can't deny that they have been effective in getting people to, you know, talk about the subject. True, we have just mentioned them. Our guests this week are the authors of the unfeasibly juicy new book, Left Out, The Inside Story of Labour Under Corbyn. It's a product of dozens of interviews from all sides of the conflict within the party, which went to quote the book from Glastonbury to Catastrophe. Gabriel Pogrand and Patrick Maguire, welcome. Hello. Hi. So there are a lot of scoops in the book. Um, I had no idea that Ian Murray was meant to join the independent group until the last minute. Well, no, no, he insists that neither did he until a, uh, <laughs> until a picture of him delivering his uh, resignation speech uh, emerged in our in our WhatsApp uh, the other night. Which one sort of most excited you when you when you were told about them? You know, you're, you're sort of ringing around and presumably some of the stuff you were being told uh, aligned with what you already knew. But what was the bits where you just your antenna started? Positive. Well, I have, um, I'd say you know, our division of labour was such that, um, and sort of our uh, journalistic sensibilities are such that I have a much lower and weirder threshold uh, of things to get excited about than, than Gabriel. So Gabriel will probably tell you a genuine scoop. But on the subject of other defections, obviously Tom Watson and Ian Austin, um, the former Dudley North MP, were both in the noughties. They were, you know, Gordon Brown's most vicious lieutenants. You know, they were essentially feral um they loathe tony blair and his acolytes more than any conservative mp on the eve of the 2019 election they were both in very different places watson had obviously resigned as deputy leader and ian austin um had resigned from parliament entirely but they both had offers um you know these two tribal labor men from the west midlands watson was wooed unsuccessfully over a series of weeks by Joe Swinson to stand in, uh, stand in Lewis in East Sussex. And um, uh, Ian Austin was offered a the Conservative candidacy in his old seat, which is now a, a Tory seat. Now, that isn't that exciting, but I think if you want an indication of what Corbyn and Brexit did to the Labour Party between 2016 and 2019, look at the, the divergent fates of those two men who were once the, mm. you know, the, the, the guerrilla fighters of Brownism and, and, and sort of that strain of... The, right, the old right of the Labour Party, they were they were about to join two parties that they had viscerally loathed out of a combination of Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn. So while that's not what we call in the trade a marmalade dropper, I, I was very excited by that, I think much to Gabriel's bafflement. Gabriel, what was, uh, what was your marmalade dropper then? <laughs> My marmalade dropper? I mean, look, I have to say, having toiled for years to uh, you know, report on the Labour Party and uh, and penetrate Corbyn's inner sanctum um, at times, probably unsuccessfully. It was uniquely gratifying to be leaked emails in which I could see uh, how Corbyn furiously responded to my own stories. Um, so there was one scooplet that I had during the general election. I was leaked a draft version of Labour's grid for the campaign. Um, and Jeremy said that he was disgusted by the degree of self-absorbed disloyalty by people at Labour HQ. Um, and it, it was quite nice completing the full circle to see how the man had reacted in real time. But I mean, in general, 
obviously Corbyn's office had a antagonistic relationship with the media and um, you know unlike previous political projects um, within the Labour Party uh, had 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 very few uh, outriders in the so-called mainstream media um, and so I think getting the access that we ultimately did um, within his team um, seeing how Corbyn for instance felt during the general election campaign in his own words felt quite gratifying and it, it sort of went beyond what we'd seen before I mean we kind of know that the election campaign was difficult but then to see Corbyn himself demanding information and being denied it um, expressing frustration about things as mundane as the fact that the Lib Dems had an electric battle bus and Labour didn't it, it was a remarkable kind of window into into Corbyn's world um, so so I think we, we we felt good about getting up close to the guy and um, and I I echo Patrick's sentiments about the the plasticity of of British politics over the last half decade, and um, the idea of Tom Watson defecting was was amazing as well. But something I think you guys will like, and it might confirm the suspicions you had about Jeremy Corbyn's office in this period. Now, one of the themes by the end of the book is that there is no such thing as Jeremy Corbyn's office, um, especially on the question of Brexit. But in 2019 and early 2019, obviously there were two camps in Jeremy Corbyn's office, and by the time of the 2019 election, they were at war with themselves. There was the Romania axis of ministers like uh, shadow ministers like John McDonnell, aides like Andrew Fisher, who thought um, that, you know, and mo- were, were more keen to move to not necessarily to more, towards a more Romanian position, but to a, a second referendum in all circumstances. Then the other side, you have uh, Carrie Murphy, Seamus Milne. Corbyn's office was so desperate, or that camp in Corbyn's office was so desperate to avoid or to, to spike the guns of the Remain side of the argument and this is almost this is scarcely believable. I, I've not. I don't think I've quite. I've, I've said this line out loud. But Corbyn's office, bear in mind their antagonistic and hostile relationship to the, to the press, and especially this particular newspaper, briefed the Sun. Some private polling they've been given that essentially suggested they'd be wiped out in their northern heartlands if they endorsed a second referendum. And the Sun promptly ran it as saying, you know, Labour facing wipeout. And if you think if you think about that. That sort of says a lot about the instinctive hostility of summing Jeremy Corbyn's inner circle to a second referendum, that they were even willing to brief the Sun, a newspaper most of them would rather didn't exist, and a newspaper that would rather Jeremy Corbyn didn't exist, in an attempt to pull the rug from under their close colleagues and comrades who wanted a second referendum. Well, this we will be speaking more about Left Out, what exactly went wrong with the Corbyn project, and plenty of Brexit later, as well as No Deal for Real. The oven-ready deal has been scraped into the bin with Boris Johnson ready to override the agreement he won an election with in which he made every Tory MP sign a pledge to support in favour of a no-deal Brexit he said he wasn't preparing for. Buckle up, as they say on Twitter. First this week, Britannia waves the rules. The UK wants to override its own withdrawal agreement, paving the way for a no-deal Brexit at the end of the year. The government initially insisted it was only seeking to clarify parts of the agreement, but changes to the Internal Market Bill have been put to Parliament that would be legally binding. Boris Johnson has set a deadline of the 15th of October for progress to be made. Ros, in the Internal Market Bill, the government is trying to undo commitments in Article 10 of the withdrawal agreement on state aid and customs in Northern Ireland, the very parts of the deal that made it possible in the first place. Um, What exactly will change and is there any chance the EU will accept that? 
I can't see the EU accepting it. It is it basically it comes down to a couple of things. One is Johnson's desire to involve any to to avoid sorry any kind of checks, uh, onerous checks on uh, goods that are going from Britain to Northern Ireland, and he he is very very anxious to avoid those because he in a moment you may recall screwed up a bit of paper and threw it in a bin and declared that there would be no no admin that these businesses would have to handle. So in order to do that, he wants to waive the export summary declarations on goods that are going from Northern Ireland to Britain. Uh, he's also want, he also wants to, uh, get, to have basically powers over certain tariffs. But the most important thing in here, and um, which according to Peter Foster, who is fantastically on top of all these issues, an FT journalist, is far stronger than even he was expecting. He posted a picture of a flamethrower and wrote bomb earlier, um, is the state aid rules. So basically he wants the UK, uh, he wants the government to be able to diverge from EU state, uh, state aid rules in Northern Ireland and, and, and basically go against European Court of Justice case law. And that means that we're in breach of our international obligations, that we are, in, in effect, breaking the law. And that is a very major step. And, and what's the thinking behind it, then? Is it brinksmanship to bring heads of state to the table? Uh, is it lowering expectations? Well, Matt Hancock says it's to protect the peace process in Northern Ireland. Um, <laughs> uh, he would say that, of course. Um there's also a line that says the EU has interpreted the whole document in the wrong way. And so we now have the right to interpret it in our own way. And it's all a matter of interpretation and so on and so forth. Uh, more realistically, uh, you have to wonder why the government is, is, is choosing this hill to die on at the moment. Does it want the whole process to just die? Does it want an excuse to walk away from the negotiating table? Has it set this up? Has it put something on the line that the EU simply cannot agree to. And in that way, is it trying to shift, to bring up the Overton window again, shift the Overton window to a point where no deal doesn't just become thinkable and possible, but becomes inevitable? Alex, you wrote about this for Byline Times. Do you think Johnson planned to renege on his deal all along? Or, or did something change? You know, did, did the hard Brexiters... Uh, get the upper hand in, in, in his inner circle? Well, I mean, that assumes that Johnson has the intellectual capacity and interest to have some kind of strategy on a really complicated issue. And I don't think he does. But it's clear he doesn't care. Um, something, I think, has changed. Peter Foster again wrote in July that the basic problem the UK negotiator, David Frost, had was that he was unable to present a clear position on the future UK regulatory environment, because it was still a live debate in number 10. There were the hard Brexiters led by Cummings who wanted a very light touch, uh, Singapore uh, of uh, Singapore on Thames uh, style regime. And there were the people who wanted to basically stay within the, the rules-based system. Um, and I think it must be the assumption that the hard liners have won on this issue and that the government is now actively driving towards no deal. Um, I mean, I, I was looking, as we were recording, I was looking at the the actual legislation coming up, and it is uh, blunter than anything even the leaks 
could have suggested. It basically says explicitly that we we reserve these powers for the minister, notwithstanding their incompatibility with any rule of international or domestic law. And then they define the list of uh, you know legislations that this might contravene, and it's just an astonishing list. It includes any provision of the Northern Ireland Protocol, any other provision of the EU withdrawal agreement, any other EU law or international law, any provision of the European Communities Act, any provision of the European Union Withdrawal Act, any retained EU law or relevant separation agreement, any other legislation, convention or rule of international or domestic law whatsoever. So, you know, this isn't a piece of legislation that looks to uh, to sort of toy around the fringes. This is something that explicitly sets out to undermine international treaties. Well, even Theresa May and William Hague, uh, who presumably assumed that the Conservative Party was into the rule of law, um, are horrified by this and what it will do to, to, to the UK's reputation abroad. Yeah. Is the plan to post Brexit to be just sort of sexy pirates swashbuckling around the world and people will people will respect us uh, for, for, for not not caring about little pieces mm. of paper? Like surely the entire uh, edifice of international trade is built on people keeping to their agreements. And and we are at the moment uh, uh, putting forward a candidate uh, to lead the World Trade Organization, whose basic uh, uh, sort of pitch on their website is that he loves rule-based trade. I mean, it's a mess, but I think it's a reaction to people increasingly not liking the Johnson government. I think he's his Brexit tribe is fraying around the edges and Cummings is looking for an issue to galvanize them back together. This bill will never go on the statute books as it is. There will be a rebellion in the Commons, probably not enough in numbers, but there will be a massive rebellion in the Lords. The provisions will get watered down until they're meaningless. But in the meantime, they will have the narrative they want, that they are trying to enact the will of the people and wicked opposition, lords, judges in the EU are trying to hamper them. But if you look at the numbers in support of no deal, uh, in support of no deal at all, as in they would tolerate it, um, yeah. you'll get 24%, which is half of Leave voters. When you, yeah. And then, then it comes down quite a lot if you're talking about the you're talking about like nine percent of voters who really like the idea of no yeah 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 of all others so this doesn't seem to be just this doesn't seem to be rallying the leave tribe it, it seems to be dividing it yeah but but that's that's the leave trump johnson way they only play to their core they've never reached out for losers consent at any point they just hope they can pile drive any everything through and then in three years time give people three pence off beer and all will be forgotten and depressingly they may be right what will be permanently damaged though by playing only to the headbanger domestic audience is the uk's international reputation just like the us's has been trashed in the last four years. And that is really difficult to recover from. Patrick, no deal gives Starmer finally the chance to be the face of sensible Brexit. Um, and Beth Rigby at Sky described this position as we're all leavers now, explicitly moving on from the, the Remain-Leave divide, which we loved so much. 
Do you think this vindicates Starmer's low profile and Brexit up to this point? Was he waiting for something like this? The critique here Starmer is making is competence-based. Like any other uh, decision the government has made, he's not questioning its ethics or wisdom. He is essentially saying, you ought to be doing it better. Um, you see that on on testing, on PPE and, and on tax. Uh, Labour's line is it's not for them to propose a prospectus for government until 2024. Um and theirs is not to there's not to reason why. So and this is on Brexit, you see this in its sort of purest form, right? He says getting a Brexit deal isn't difficult or it shouldn't be difficult. The government is making it so. You know, as 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 Beth Rigby said with that line about we're all leavers now, there is no attempt to question or even to say um if Boris Johnson doesn't get a Brexit deal, you know, we're heading for economic cataclysm. It's the Prime Minister should be able to do the thing that he did, regardless of whether I think it's a good idea or not. He's 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 not um he's not betraying his view on that, partly for fear of repeating the trick he pulled off so successfully between twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen, which was you know, polarizing the electorate. And and, and it's quite artful in that it allows uh Keir Starmer to present at the Boris Johnson getting a Brexit de- trade deal if he gets one as routine as the most basic standard of, of prime ministership. And if he doesn't get one, it allows him to crank up that competence critique to 11, to say this is basic stuff, as he said in PMQs about testing today, um, and yet you can't even f- fulfil that. So I'm not quite sure whether we can say it's been vindicated yet because we're still you know, miles away from being the- this being tested at the ballot box. But I certainly think that... Um, he's showing that his critique uh, of the government or his competence-based strategy can be employed even on something as historically knotty and divisive an issue for Brexit as late uh, as le- for Labour as Brexit. Sorry, Gabriel, the, the head of the government's legal department, Jonathan Jones, has quit over this decision. Uh, unlike Attorney General Suella Braverman, um, is this given that Dominic Cummings wants a Brexified overhaul of the civil service? Uh, will he be glad to see the back of people who aren't on board. This is the sort of sixth major uh, resignation this year. I'm sure I'll be delighted because uh, Dominic Cummings has um, made no secret of his view that the civil service is, um, it, it suffers from groupthink. Uh, it tends to be uh, dominated by people of a particular political disposition um, and that the best way of improving it is by basically getting rid of permanent secretaries or at least making clear that they don't have jobs for life um, and opening up the so-called system to people with expertise from the private sector or from different walks of life. Uh, who, who could forget his misfits and weirdos advert, which he tried to rope in bright young things uh, with kind of quirky views and life experience. Um, so, you know, we, as you say, we've had uh, six senior civil servants departing um, in, in recent times and, um, I think, you know, Dominic Cummings himself has said that uh, hard rain is going to fall in the civil service. Um, I was speaking to somebody uh, last week who was saying he's likely to impose um, fixed term contracts on on a lot of top brass. And we could see whole departments um, being moved to Manchester or a kind of regional hub in the north again, just to kind of unsettle the latte quaffing uh, class that dominates Whitehall in in his mind. Um, so, I mean, look, strategically, um, who, who do these resignations help? I mean, you, you might feel in yourself that you can't serve a government which a, a appears not, not to care about international law. And, um, you, you know, we, we, we can only 
guess uh, what is what has gone on um, uh, behind the scenes in the head of Jonathan James. His resignation letter was very cryptic, but every time somebody like him leaves or Mark Sedwell leaves, um, it, it uh, strengthens the hand of Cummings to rewire the way that government in this country works. Okay, so there's a, a little bit of breaking news as we record. There's a line out from number 10, uh, uh, quote, the withdrawal agreement and Northern Ireland protocol aren't like any other treaty. It was agreed at pace in the most challenging possible political circumstances. Uh, so effectively what they're saying <laughs> is that they did it too quickly to read it. Uh, now, considering how uh, forcibly they resisted people's calls to give uh, to give Parliament a little bit more time to scrutinise it, I think that's rather dubious. Can I predict the next line, which will be that it was signed pre-COVID and after COVID, everything has to change and we have to dole out a lot more state aid potentially. And so everything now ought to be up in the air. That's my oh, That would have been a much better one. I know. I, I should be doing the government. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a job waiting for you. I'll, uh, I'll let yes, know. you weirdo. <laughs> you maverick. Now, left out, the inside story of Labour under Corbyn describes battles not only between the Corbyn project, the PLP and surly staffers, but within Corbyn's inner circle as Labour's psychodrama went from bad to worse. Uh, there's a memorable line where Tom Watson tells Peter Mandelson in 2019, I see not just what they're doing to the Labour Party, destroying it, but the sheer brutality with which they're doing it. And I can't bear it. I just feel contaminated. He compared being deputy leader to wading through a terrible swamp. Uh, nobody comes out of this terrible swamp looking good, except Patrick Maguire and Gabriel Pogrand. Here they are. <laughs> we'll, take we'll take that. Uh, so somehow you wrote this, according to the acknowledgements, uh, in about six months, much of it under lockdown. Um, why do you think so many people, um, obviously there wasn't a lot of time, it seems, to kind of chase reluctant interviewees. So why do you think so many people were willing to talk to you on and off the record? I, I, I think... Um... There are some uh, structural reasons for this, and and some more um, prosaic administrative ones. I'll start. I'll start with the latter. Um, basically, everybody was just locked indoors doing nothing. It was so bored they had nothing better to do than submit to our uh, annoying WhatsApps, um, ask, asking for their time. I mean, I, I genuinely think we were the, the, the lockdown um, benefited us um, because nobody had any excuse and couldn't claim to be doing anything else. As to why uh, people initially were quite up for chatting to us. I think it's the fact that by the end, uh, Corbyn's office um, was at war with itself and um, everybody wanted to explain why it wasn't their fault. It, yeah, does that, do you think it's, I mean, you are both sort of frighteningly young, so it's not like you've got decades of uh, comparisons here, but do you, do you think that this, the Labour Party at this point was unusually leaky? It's astonishing what came out. Well, the, the Labour Party as a corporate entity is usually quite leaky as any political party is but and and this was sort of you know times exponentially uh, during the corbyn era but the leaks about corbyn's operation t- came from the adversaries it dealt with because the project as they referred to themselves and as we refer to them in the book the small band of cor- comrades that made corbynism happen were essentially felt under siege and this explains a lot of their often counterintuitive political decisions during this period they felt under siege and they couldn't trust anybody so for much of the Corbyn period 
nothing ever leaked from Corbyn's office or nothing substantial ever leaked. You might get a leak about Seamus Milne or Carrie Murphy when they dealt with someone from outside their immediate circle, but never from within the project. But as you say, by the end, and this was mainly a consequence of Brexit, but all which amplified existing clashes of personality and, uh, and politics, they're at war with each other. And there are, you know, maybe two, three, four narratives about who was to blame for the collapse in Corbyn's office and the bad electoral decisions taken in 2019. So, as Gabriel says, they weren't leakers by disposition or temperament. They, a lot of them held the press in contempt. But we set out not to write a hagiography or a hatchet job. We wanted to write a fateful account of this uh, tumultuous period in Labour history. And it suited everybody involved, given that we're sort of equal opportunities um, hacks. You know, our starting assumption was that everybody had an equal capacity for incompetence. It was in everybody's interest to basically say, well, look, this is how I saw this happen. And, and, and this was who to blame. So, you know, while they weren't traditionally leaky, um, and especially because it was over, that helped, you know, leaking about something that has already happened is a far less destructive act than leaking some of the stuff we were given in the thick of it, right? To say, oh, this very embarrassing thing happened two years ago at this point of maximum pressure is, you know, while some people might think it's a betrayal, is not the betrayal it is if you're saying at the time, this is what's happening right now. The decisions and mistakes have already been made. And, I mean, a lot of the... We started this podcast uh, just before the 2017 election, so just before the sort of time frame of your book. Um, and so some of this stuff I'm reading about is stuff that we discussed with a lot less inside knowledge uh, while it was happening. And some of it is perhaps counterintuitive to people. Starmer, for example, emerges as a, as a pragmatist who is quite happy to get Brexit done rather than this kind of obsessive arch-remainer who was pushing the party towards a people's vote. So who would you say did drive Labour? Uh, towards a second referendum, was it was it ultimately the members rather than a Starmer, a Watson, or you know whoever? I think it was that, that you have this moment in 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 the wake of twenty seventeen where it, it is pretty apparent that the arithmetic of Parliament means that Theresa May is not going to be able to get a deal um, over the line that reflects the priorities she set out in her Lancaster House speech. Um, and so the real question in the aftermath uh, of, of her having been denied that parliamentary majority by Corbyn was, does Theresa May change her red lines? Does she accept she needs to compromise with Labour, get some sort of hard Brexit? And um, we know, for instance, that David Davis actually called Starmer, um, I think on 4am of the uh, election itself in 2017. Um, I think Starmer missed the call, but um, upon ringing back, was expecting Davis to say, right, well, uh, there's just no way this parliament's passing what we've set out. So let's talk. Can we unite around a soft Brexit? Uh, the fact that Theresa May was so unyielding and intransigent meant that that soft Brexit compromise never happened. And the more time went on, the more that um, negotiations founded, the more polarised the country became. And I don't think Corbyn did much work to get the Labour membership into a place where um, it wanted to back a soft Brexit, not least because Corbyn himself um, him, himself didn't necessarily um, know exactly what he wanted. And so I think by 2018, 
the, the country was was not minded for um, uh, half in half out Brexit, and you had the ERG hardening, and you had you know so called Remainers or, or, or indeed Remainiacs um, becoming more maximalist in their mindset. And um, I think Keir Starmer's team say that when he said at the party's conference in 2018, nobody is ruling out Remain on the ballot paper in the event of a second referendum. Um, This, of course, triggered a huge outburst and chorus of applause, a big standing ovation. I I think that they weren't weren't necessarily expecting that. I mean, Starmer's people say that he was merely stating the letter of Labour's agreed policy, but it was clear that he was the right man at the right moment and he provided a voice and an outlet for this swelling grassroots opinion within Labour's membership, which was, why are we doing this when Remain is obviously the best deal we can get? How do you explain the uh, party's un- unexpectedly good showing in 2017? Because this is something I've I've been wondering. Because in 2019, it was generally agreed that the party was unelectable and Corbyn was completely toxic. If that was the case, why wasn't it so toxic in 2017? How come they came so close? Was it purely that Theresa May was unpopular and people wanted to give her a kicking? Well, I mean, you might recall that when Theresa May um, announced that election in 2017, a lot of the broadcasters were uh, relatively compliant, um, or, or at least uh, responded in a way Number 10 might have hoped, by dubbing it the Brexit election. Um, obviously, Theresa May claimed that the reason she was doing it was because she wanted to strengthen her hand in Brussels. Um, but insofar as she had a majority, um, nobody bought that. And Labour were, uh, you, you can say they were artful um, or they were lucky um, that the election wasn't fought on the terrain that Theresa May had envisaged. Um, the party was never forced to uh, reconcile um, its electoral coalition or the different factions within the shadow cabinet and PLP in terms of Brexit. It got to park the issue um, and instead fight on issues where it was very strong, such as uh, austerity or, as it happened in the end, social care. We know that by 2019, not only could Labour no longer dodge Brexit, but its contradictions had been laid bare and hammered relentlessly by Boris Johnson for um, the best part of three, four, five months. And so it, it, I think that the, you know every election is obviously kind of product of constellation of different circumstances but not having to grapple with brexit being able to get corbyn out into the country campaigning on issues which were close to his heart anti-austerity radical change um it, it was an election which suited him very nicely indeed but do you think that prevailing 2017 narrative that you know the polls were wrong, it was just propaganda, we, did, we had the best results since the war, and that Labour effectively didn't lose the election but actually prevented May from winning, ended up blindsiding them in 2019. Did, did the objective of the party going into the 2019 election effectively shift from winning power to doing better than their detractors thought? It's a very good question, and I think you've hit the nail on the head with this idea that much of Corbynism in the period we write about, i.e. after 2017, is a long quest in proving the people who thought they were wrong, wrong. So a big part of Corbynite mythology is that 
they were the only reason they didn't win in 2017 was because hostile officials at Labour's party headquarters had their own secret parallel campaign where they full of resources to opponents of the leadership and you know wanted to fight a much more defensive campaign now that that is at a basic level true we detail this in the book they had a secret seats team where they would send leaflets to seats that might fall and indeed many of them did fall in 2019 you know leaflets went out in Tom Watson's constituency and others that basically said I know you hate Corbyn, but listen up, that's great, because you don't hate him half as much as we do. They believe that they, once they fought an election on their own terms, and again, once Jeremy was out there in the country, Ofcom's broadcasting rules would kick in, so the uh, the news the news, uh, news uh, broadcast wouldn't be taking their cues from the hostile print press, but would be giving Jeremy uh, equal airtime with the Conservatives, then it would be fine. And you see this most starkly in the, the list of de- offensive seats they were going to fight in 2019. You know, not for them the defensive campaign that their headquarters uh, and the hostile officials made them fight in 2017. They would go out on the front foot, preach the gospel of Corbynism to the country, and things would go great. So, yeah, I think the 2017 hangover did prevent them from fighting a set- more sensible campaign that adjusted for the the post-Brexit reality in 2019, but also at a more fundamental level, they had won. And they had proved the people who were so unpleasant to them in the preceding period, uh, 2015 to 2017, wrong. So while there was a strategic argument for bringing people into the tent and you know bringing their uh, detractors into the tent, and in 2019, Andrew Fisher and Amy Jackson, two of Corbyn's aide, both suggested reshuffles that would bring even the likes of Rachel Reeves, you know, proper you know, hate figures for the left on the party's right into the shadow cabinet, there was no real appetite to do so because they'd won. Why would they bend the knee to the people who didn't think them legitimate? Mm. And looking back, that sort of heady joy after 2017, I think you're right, did impede um, more strategic decision-making later on. Uh, Gabriel, I want to talk a little bit about Corbyn himself. Um, Because coming out of the book, and, and it's not, the book is not a sort of hatchet job and there is a lot of criticism to go around, but I mean, his weaknesses are numerous, and it's even his best qualities, you know, loyalty, strong principles, you know, politeness, dislike of confrontation, seem to become liabilities, which did leave me wondering, uh, certainly in this post-2017 period, do you think, he, did he have any real strengths as a, as a politician, as a, as a party leader? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a damning question that uh, you've been left to ask. Um I think I think he had many many strengths. I think that the strengths lay in the fact that he was an anti-politician. He was somebody who we recount had to uh, beg and borrow a pair of cufflinks from a junior staffer ahead of Xi Jinping's uh, state banquet uh, at Buckingham Palace in 2015. Because he didn't own a pair himself. He he was a guy who uh, consciously defied uh, the protocols of modern politics after decades of spin. Um, decades in which the party was managed according to the principles of New Labour. All of that was very attractive in 2015. It was attractive to the membership in 2016, even after the coup as a result of his apparent indifference on the question of Brexit. By 2019, though, um, anti-Semitism and Brexit together demanded a style of leadership, both behind the scenes and publicly, that he just wasn't about. Um nobody wants consensus or nobody wanted consensus when it came to Brexit. They wanted leadership. You know, there is an extent to which conventional leadership is about yourself um, changing the reality in front of you. 
rather than merely remarking upon it and trying to bring different people together in a vain hope that they might somehow agree. Similarly on anti-Semitism, you know, the Jewish community, arguably, uh, you know, the media needed to see something from him that transcended, um, you know, yes, I get it, but really showed him being decisive and um, incisive in his handling of it. And so I think those two themes almost put him in a box that he struggled to get out of. And um, I mean, there are also competing voices whispering in his ear, which I think made life more difficult for him. Um, there are a lot of people, kind of trusted, often Jewish socialist friends um, from Islington North, who were telling him alongside his wife, don't you dare give an inch. And if you if you give them an inch on this, they'll take a mile. Um, therefore, don't yield to your opponents. And um, and then you had you know John McDonnell, uh, his oldest comrade, a, tr- a long trusted friend in politics, telling him, you, "You've got to give, you've got to give, because it would be a disaster if our great if our great opportunity if we were to die on the hill of something as arcane and irrelevant as the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism." And I think think these competing voices, the demand of a different kind of leadership style. Um, imposed a great strain on Corbyn personally, and we, you know, I was remarking earlier upon the WhatsApps that we have of him during the election campaign himself. You know, there's something, you know, kind of tragicomic, obviously, about the fact that he was reduced to lashing out at staff because Joe Swinson had her shiny electric bus, and we only have our diesel one. Um, but they also paint a rather sad portrait of a man who felt he didn't have control. Um, which you know effectively for me conveyed that uh, the the man who did something you know for many quite beautiful in 2015 um, was was probably uniquely ill suited to the world um, four years on. Um, Patrick John McDonnell emerges as as quite a tragic figure uh, in the book. Is that he had the ambition? Uh, Jeremy sort of had the popularity with the with the membership, and while Corbyn uh, increasingly seemed to me like he didn't particularly want to be prime minister. Um, McDonald always had his eyes on power. I thought, that, you know, without power, none of it meant anything. Did you come away with the impression that the project would have fared uh, quite differently if he had stood for leader in 2015 and become leader? Um, it's a good question, but I think the, it's founded on a sort of the very fact the question is being asked sort of proves that it would never happen. The very the, the, there would have been no project without Jeremy Corbyn. Jo, the very fact that John McDonnell would have been a good leader of the Labour Party, uh, or rather would have been a better left leader of the of the Labour Party than Jeremy Corbyn, is precisely why it was Jeremy Corbyn who was the left candidate who was allowed to stand by the Parliamentary Labour Party. <laughs> Labour MPs thought McDonnell was, um, you know, whereas Corbyn was sort of you know an eccentric. Um, uh, you know, an old crank, but basically a benign one. He was a slightly shambling, avuncular figure. McDonnell was deeply, deeply serious. And that's why to so many Labour MPs, he was so dangerous. He had no interest in uh, palling around with Labour MPs, whereas Jeremy Corbyn is, you know, Mike Gapes, one of the Change UK, MP, uh, Change UK MPs, has fond recollections talking to Jeremy Corbyn about Arsenal as if they weren't on, you know, uh, um, you know, diametrically opposed sides of the Labour Party, whereas John McDonnell was considered both rude uh, in his dealings with other Labour MPs and genuinely scary and fanatical in the politics he held. 
But say there is a scenario in which John McDonald becomes leader of the Labour Party, he certainly doesn't allow Labour to get caught down the cul-de-sacs that Jeremy Corbyn um, gets caught down. And he, he he knew that all along on Brexit, on anti-Semitism, on questions like Russia. He was always willing to make the concessions that Corbyn wouldn't. Now, it's worth saying that people on Jeremy Corbyn's side of the argument say that's the problem with John McDonnell. Once he was near power, it was all tactics and no strategy. They point to what happened on Brexit and say, look, we were obliterated in the places in the country that need socialism most because John McDonnell thought in terms of sort of an electoral abacus and didn't really have a coherent strategy. He was all about uh, tactics. A great quote in the book is talking about the the row over the definition of anti-Semitism that um, dominated 2018. And uh, an aide to McDonnell said, um, you know, John would have had Jeremy on the next plane to Jerusalem. If he, if he was in charge. And you can see why allies of Jeremy Corbyn think, well, look, we have to stand for something. You know, we can't just be the Blair out and everything, but boy, are our economics left wing party. So there is there are two, you know, there are two schools of thought. One is that McDonald um, lances the boils that Corbyn let fester. And the other is, well, if John McDonald is leader of the project, what do we have left in the end? Um, but it's worth saying that some Tory MPs did think when things were looking really bad for them in the autumn of 2019, I remember I went for lunch with one minister who said, if it's an electoral contest between Boris Johnson and John McDonnell, the father of the nation, McDonnell wins every time. But, you know, we'll never know. Can I can I ask something tangentially related? So in the early stages of the Corbyn tenure, I, I chatted to a lot of people that were very close to his campaign. And and a lot of them freely admitted that he was a sort of placeholder there to nudge the party to the left and groom a younger, more dynamic candidate to take over. And people were talking about the sort of timeline of one year as short as that. Did you pick up any echoes of that? What happened to that plan? I think that... Um Events, dear boy, got in the way to some degree. Um, the coup of 2016 created this siege mentality um, within the leader's office. Um, you know, but by the by, the, this is all by the admission of the people who were in it. Um, they had aspired to create this kind of gentle and open, positive politics. Um, rather more difficult to do that when you know that your own MPs and shadow cabinet. And the, the the media are kind of arrayed in opposition to you, um, so I don't think they were ever given the space to have a conversation about mm. post Corbyn um, or whether there was a Corbynism without Corbyn himself. And you know there were prominent figures um, in over the course of 2017 who said that with Labour um, awaiting electoral Armageddon, that it would be better uh, for a left wing leader to take Corbyn's place. Um, you know, obviously, uh, Owen Jones uh, significantly um, suggested that very outcome um, prior to the general election, in which Corbyn did uh, unexpectedly well. Um, but I think uh, the fact that he defied his critics um, against Theresa May um, meant that that question was permanently put to bed. And um, basically, the left was um, forced to, or itself willingly uh, decided to, um, to, to keep Corbyn in the throne. Um, we know that fast forward to 2019, by the way, because it's an interesting question that you ask, um, that there were practically no succession plans. There was no blueprint. Um, 
you know, some people wanted John McDonald to stand. Others wanted it to be Ian Lavery. Others were saying it should be Becky Long Bailey. Uh, others were saying Angela Rayner. There was no coherence of thought about what came after Corbyn, probably at any point um, from, from from his leadership in 2015 up until last year. Um, and I, I say that that was probably due to the strain required merely to keep the co- keep the show on the road in the meantime. Hello, it's Andrew Harrison, the producer here. If you like Romaniacs, you will love The Bunker. Every Wednesday, the Romaniacs regulars plus new guests get together for a no-holds-barred political roundtable about anything and everything except Brexit. What we are definitely living through is a golden age of incompetence. We don't talk about the parts of the data pipeline that are the cause of misleading arguments. On Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, there's The Bunker Daily with one-to-ones and explainers on everything from the economy to the arts, culture, and even food. Italians are extravagant about food, but never wasteful. That's what I'm like. I'm a genius. That's what the J stands for, Donald J. Trump. That's The Bunker, with all your favourites from Romaniacs and more. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. killer question for this podcast i suppose is we can't know how the 2019 election would have gone if labor had chosen levers over remainers and decided okay let's try and keep the red wall but losing uh, a lot of more metropolitan seats but it couldn't stay in the fence as you said like it had in, in 2017 and, and it was dividing even the inner circle so in hindsight do you think there was any way out of the brexit trap um it's a very good question and um, i think any decisive decision one way or the other would have antagonised part of Labour's coalition. But the interesting question is, Andrew Murray, Corbyn's uh, uh, chief advisor to Len McCluskey and and also strategic advisor for Corbyn in the aftermath of the 2017 election, um, we write write in the book how he proposed a grand bargain with the Tories on Brexit that he said could neutralise all the attacks on Labour about patriotism, they'd be acting in the national interest, they'd strike a deal for, you know, single market membership and customs union membership or something that looked like it with the Tories. They'd split the Tories in two, they'd have a sort of Corn Law style schism, they'd have delivered Brexit and it would have been fine. It's worth remembering at that point also that Chuck Ramuna and the Labour Remainers are not yet in a place where they're calling for full Remain. They're sort of ratcheting up, but in 2017, the furthest they're going is the single market. Now, that encountered a lot of hostility, not only from Corbyn himself, but people he listened to, like Diane Abbott, who called it um, the Ramsey McCorbyn plan. But I think if there was ever a point <laughs> at which Labour were going to make a big offer on Brexit, it had to be, and shadow cabinet ministers and Corbyn aides admit this now, that it was probably at that point when the Tory party were in maximum disarray, um, Labour were in, a, were in a position of strength, Corbyn was still sort of riding high in relative terms in public popularity. They could have seized the initiative there. And while, you know, the likes of David Davis were still banging on about German car manufacturers, they could have really turned up the heat on Theresa May, who at that point was desperate to deliver Brexit. So I think it had to be at that point where both the Tories and the PLP were in such a place where they might be willing to hear that. And Gabriel, finally, judging from Labour Twitter, you might think the blame game uh, will go on forever, um, particularly as they're waiting for the report into the into the leaks about the alleged sabotage of 2017 and so on. Did you get the, that impression of kind of 
endless civil war from your sources? Or did they seem sufficiently keen to move on that you could imagine a relatively harmonious I mean, everything basically is relatively harmonious compared to, to, to Labour under Corbyn, but by 2024. So I think the first thing to say is the, the sort of the essence of the Labour Party, its very nature is one of perpetual civil war um, because of our electoral system and first past the post. Uh, main, you know, large political parties are forced to be uh, broad coalitions um, with kind of various strains of you know, often kind of there are intellectual cousins that are forced to live in the same household. And, you know, that, that, that certainly applies to Labour. And so it's not new that there are, uh, you know, strains of thought within the Labour Party that are at odds with one another. Um, I think the question is, is does being destructive help the left now? You know, it, it probably doesn't. You know, we know that when Keir Starmer sacked Lock- Becky Long-Bailey, that that was that was almost that was a there was a, there was a question being asked to the left, which was, um, what can you guys do about this? What are you going to do about this? Um, the answer in the end was nothing. Um, but the left have been enfeebled in that way. They don't have any big people right around Starmer himself. Um, the new leader's office is populated by people who you know aren't aren't members of you know the new new Labour world um, per se, but certainly um, have kind of strong relations. Uh, to a lot of people um, who were close to Blair, um, Labour's own new general secretary was an assistant GenSec uh, under Blair himself. Um, and so um, I, I think that the left will f- be forced to be a little more constructive. And also they criticise the right a lot for being so-called wreckers, for basically trying to destroy Labour if that was the price required to get rid of Corbyn himself. Um, I, I don't see that there are enough MPs or extra parliamentary figures of the left um, who, who have an appetite to do that. So um, to answer your question, I don't think it's going to be quite as toxic as the last five years. And frankly, I don't know if that would even be possible. So what, what survives of the project then? Do you think it, it, it has a, that we'll be able to look back and go, it shifted Labour to the left, it introduced certain ideas that, you know, that, that were retained? I think that it's one of the big moments in Corbyn's leadership campaign in 2015 was when, um, unlike his rivals, he categorically um, opposed cuts to um, child welfare benefits. And, you know, that, that world seems very, a very long time ago now. I mean, Corbyn came, came in this moment where nobody seemingly was willing to challenge the... Uh, kind of austerity consensus. People were even saying that Ed Miliband had lost because he was too left-wing. So let's go further to the right, the sort of Chris Leslie view on the world. <laughs> and I, I think that we are we clearly are having a very different conversation about the state, about um, its role in the economy, about its role in society now than we were then. You know, I don't, I don't see that even in Keir Starmer's team, um, that you have people who are kind of arguing for a return to the status quo of 2007 or 2009 or 10. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Andy McDonald, um, one of Corbyn's, uh, sorry, one of, well, Corbyn and Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet ministers um, yesterday said that um, we should be trialling a four-day week. Um, And so um, I think that there is a greater radicalism and intellectual imagination on the left now than there was before. 
um, and and that might provide some some comfort to the Corbyn Easters. You know, I mean, they 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 will say they they won the argument. I mean, um, I think that COVID is a unique um, a unique moment in 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 our recent past, and um, whether Boris Johnson is going to be quite so expansive um, in his conception of what the state can do um, in one, two, three, or four years' time um, is. A different question. All, all we know is that we don't know what the world will look like uh, tomorrow, and uh, I don't think they've won it quite yet. We've reached the end of the show. Thanks to Alex. Thank you. Roz. Thank you. And I guess Gabriel. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. And Patrick. Thank you very much. Their book Left Out, The Inside Story of Labour Under Corbyn, is out now in all good bricks, mortar and digital bookshops. And don't forget, you can see us live on Zoom on September 24th. You can get exclusive access to the stream when you back us on Patreon. Now it's time for our theme song, Demons and Monster by Corner Shop. And thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Thanks from me to Patricia Trail, Omri... Peter Riddlesdale and Snore Solemn. Hello from me to Stuart Robka, John Ruxton, Phil Nickel, and Niels Benjamin. And thanks from me to Brendan Fagan, Ian Bear Park, Kate Thorsteinson, and Gary Killington. Take care and see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ros Taylor and Alexandre. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Hold up. 